Hello, my name is Kristen Gutu, and this is Technically Biased, the podcast that discusses bias in tech. Monday, June 5th, was World Environment Day, which was established in 1973 by the United Nations, making this year the 50th anniversary. According to the UN's website, World Environment Day is the largest global platform for environmental public outreach and is celebrated by millions of people across the world. Today's episode will be discussing how corporations colonized the globe through the exploitation of the environment and its people and how this made those companies rich. The goal of this discussion is to understand the similarities between corporations destroying our physical environment in the past and present, as well as corporations that are now monopolizing the digital world as well. So this exploitation relies on cheap human labor and people believing corporations when they say that they are replaceable and that AI will take their jobs. AI will never replace humans. It may do more mundane work and continue to do that, but humans are irreplaceable. However, corporations leverage this lie that they are replaceable to further exploit and underpay the invaluable work done by human workers. These corporations know their workers do not have the platform to demand more equitable pay and treatment and thus take advantage of those vulnerabilities. This episode will discuss different corporations, past and present, who exploited the environment and its people in order to make profit at the expense of our long-term future. So, what is World Environment Day? As I mentioned, it serves as a platform to engage individuals, communities, governments, and organizations in positive environmental actions. In the past, this was celebrated through tree planting campaigns, cleanup drives, and other sustainable development initiatives. This is no longer enough, nor has it really been enough for a while now. The event provides an opportunity for governments and organizations to announce new policies, initiatives, and commitments to environmental conservation. So it is our civic duty to demand more of our governments in the terms of the environment as well as our people. So how does technology contribute to climate change? This is a multifaceted answer, so we will take it slow. To begin, we need to understand how technology uses vast amount of energy, increasing its carbon footprint. So technology harms the environment not only through this large consumption of energy, but also through electronic waste, e-waste, or resource depletion, which includes water consumption. Today, from a data perspective, big corporations require data centers and data warehouses to store their data. To avoid any data loss, these corporations store their data in multiple warehouses to avoid any issues that might arise if one of the warehouses crashes. So again, what does this mean? This means that these facilities consume vast amounts of energy, which are solely built to house data, 
and operate their servers. And the servers require cool temperatures to ensure that they don't overheat from processing too much information. Of course, overheating would result in data being processed slower or in the worst case scenario in the data servers crashing, which could mean loss of information, but which is also the reason corporations tend to have multiple warehouses to store the same data. So a lot of energy is required just for the processing power and storage capacity demanded by today's technology. And that technology includes cloud computing, artificial intelligence, AI, and big data. Worse than that, this energy often comes from non-renewable sources. So in addition to the emissions that are already being produced, this also contributes to global warming and environmental degradation by posing risks to the ecosystem, biodiversity, and our human well-being. More than that, this rapid advancement of technology means that more people have technology and they have more of it. And this ever-increasing demand contributes to, as I mentioned earlier, electronic waste, e-waste. So discarded smartphones, laptops, TV, servers, what have you. These materials require different minerals that are being mined. So whether that's lead or mercury or cadmium, And any improper disposal, which is usually the case, uh, can result in pollution in the soil, in the water, in the air, and it poses further health risks for both humans and the wildlife. So this is interesting to note because I just finished reading a great book by Vince Beiser called The World in a Grain, The Story of Sand and How It Transformed Civilization. And it's important to note that not only is this aforementioned waste an issue, but so is the rapid increased use of such minerals. So sand is our third most commonly used natural resources resource, only behind air and water. And it is being used in exorbitant amounts and not really being appreciated for its versatility. So sand is used all around us, from the roads we walk on, the, uh, the roads we drive down, the buildings we live in, the buildings we work in, the technological devices we use. Glass isn't uh, used for, oh, sand is used for glass. It's used to filter things. So it's invaluable. It's being used so often, again, so versatile, and it's leading to resource depletion and illegal sand mining. And this resource depletion poses a major concern in today's environment. Not only is the technology contributing to this resource depletion, but it's further perpetuating it. So earlier I mentioned that data centers require a lot of energy, which is true, but they also require a lot of minerals. So the extraction and processing of these resources often involve environmentally destructive practices such as mining and deforestation. And again, like I said earlier, the increased demand for these materials puts additional strain on ecosystems and further contributes to habitat loss, biodiversity decline, and environmental degradation. And I mentioned that water consumption is, of course, one of the resource depletion challenges we are currently facing. 
It is required in substantial amounts for a data center's cooling purposes. And the cooling purposes not only consume significant volumes of water, but do so particularly in regions with water scarcity. This excessive use usually strains local water resources, further depletes water tables, further harming aquatic ecosystems and biodiversity. So everything always loops back. So this probably sounds a little depressing, and can we fix it? We can, but we certainly need to address the issues if we want to work towards them. So energy efficiency can be improved through advanced cooling technologies and more efficient server design, possibly through the use of renewable energy sources. Uh, these energy sources could include solar or wind power and should be used as alternatives for powering centers. We need better policies for effective e-waste management strategies to address proper recycling procedures and a responsible disposal of electronic devices. Also on the United Nations page regarding this holiday, it highlights that more than 400 million tons of plastic is produced every year worldwide, half of which is designed to be used only once. Of that, less than 10% is recycled. An estimated 19 to 23 million tons end up in lakes, rivers, and seas annually. That is approximately the weight of 2,200 Eiffel Towers altogether." End quote. So again, a lot to address. It's a massive problem, but it's one that we can tackle if we decide to. Sustainable design principles need to be incorporated in all aspects of every business. Um, in the situation of data centers, it certainly needs to be incorporated in using energy efficient equipment, optimizing server utilization, and employing better green building practices. The balancing of these advantages of technology with its environmental con consequences requires constant innovation, collaboration, so much diversity, which we are not seeing in the tech space, and a commitment to sustainable practices, which again, we don't often see in the tech space. We hear the motto, move fast and break things. And I think that's a very elitist mentality because you might be moving fast and you might be breaking things. And sure, you might be making strides, but at whose expense? And often those who are breaking things are incurring further obstacles for those that are already more marginalized or are marginalized. And so it is not they who are facing the consequences, but other people's other people. So that's not a very fair motto. I think we need to move carefully. I think we need more inclusive tech, higher data standards, higher policies, or more strict policies. And hopefully in that vein, we can move towards a more sustainable future. So what companies have contributed to climate change in the past? Of course, this is such a broad question. Um, every corporation right, has contributed to climate change. We all do. But what are some of the more significant, all too familiar examples that we've heard of? So they include Enron, BP, Exxon, some of the favorites. And though these cases are often discussed or referenced, 
many important facts have been overlooked. So regarding the exploitation of the environment and the environmental degradation, companies like Enron, BP, Exxon have pursued aggressive resource extraction strategies, often at the expense of environmental sustainability. So moving fast, breaking things. Enron's financial misdeeds and fraudulent practices, fraudulent being such an understatement, um, concealed their detrimental impact on the environment and the manipulation of the market and the manipulation of people's innate vulnerabilities. And BP and Exxon were also notorious for their involvement in oil spills and greenhouse gas emissions. So truly the thing they have in common is prioritizing short-term profits over long-term ecological preservation and economic sustainability. Regarding vulnerable communities and disproportionate suffering, like I said, it is those that are most vulnerable and marginalized that are often situated in low-income areas who bear the brunt of the consequences of climate change. And these don't have to be local communities. These communities can be located anywhere in the world in relation to the corporation's headquarters or where the corporation works primarily out of. And in general, these communities typically lack the resources to adapt to the changing climate and are disproportionately affected by housing displacement, natural disasters, food and water scarcity, health issues, etc. And it needs to be addressed because not only is this an environmental injustice, but a human rights violation that is affecting those who are not among the wealthiest people on the planet. And large-scale deforestation, pollution, displacement of these populations for resources extraction are just some of the examples of how these human rights violations are being perpetuated. And more than that, the voices of those being affected are often silenced or ignored by corporations and by media, which further deepens the imbalance between those impacted and the corporations. And it further drives this mentality that I mentioned earlier where corporations can colonize the globe at the expense of the environment and its people. And so there's a great urgency for change. We need to invest in sustainable development initiatives and we need to empower marginalized communities to not only participate in decision-making processes, but to spearhead these processes that are crucial in achieving the environmental justice that we all deserve. So I'm going to talk a little more on Enron because I just love them. And I read an incredible book that really gives an overview of their story, which is called The Smartest Guys in the Room, The Amazing Rise and Scandalous Fall of Enron by Bethany McLean and Peter Elkind. This book dives into the gory details of Enron's exploitation during the 1980s, 90s, and 2000s of the globe from an environmental perspective, but primarily from an economic perspective. 
practices across various regions, such as India, South America, even California, among many others, are examples of Enron reaping profits at the expense of other economies and terrain. They did not care if it was international economies they were manipulating and taking advantage of, or even if it was their local domestic communities such as that in California. So in India, Enron's exploitative practices were marked by the controversial Dabhol power project in Maharashtra. In this project, Enron aggressively pushed for the construction of a massive power plant, which unsurprisingly went on to face numerous issues. These issues included inflated costs, corruption allegations, and a lack of transparency, among others. Consequently, the project collapsed and the Indian consumer was burdened with exorbitant electricity tariffs and Enron walked away with substantial profits. In South America, Enron's presence, particularly in countries like Brazil and Argentina, also had devastating consequences. The company employed, again, aggressive tactics to gain control over energy assets and infrastructure, leveraging political connections and questionable financial deals, as was their forte. These actions resulted in privatization of essential public services, increased electricity prices, and financial instability. Ultimately, the energy crises and economic turmoil in these countries led to widespread social unrest and further marginalization of vulnerable communities. Good job, Enron. So, closer to home in California, during the 90s and early 2000s, Enron once again took advantage of their market, this time by manipulating energy markets to exacerbate the state's then energy crisis. By strategically creating artificial electricity shortages by withholding power supply, Enron was then able to drive up prices and profit from energy trading. Through unethical mark-to-market accounting practices and additional market manipulation, Enron capitalized on the chaos, leading to skyrocketing energy prices, rolling blackouts, and significant financial losses for California consumers. Since they were manipulating the energy market, Enron obviously could not illustrate the profit they were making on their balance sheet. So, as was Enron tradition, they hid the profit, they played with the losses, and they smudged the numbers on their financial documents. Now, the reason I mention all of this is to illustrate how technology and the environment and human exploitation played out in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. So, four decades ago. And to now contrast that to how that type of manipulation of more vulnerable communities is continuing to play out in a technological space today while also influencing the environment and its people. So now I will be discussing how companies and countries are starting to move into the metaverse. If it wasn't enough that big corporations have colonized the physical world, they're now doing the same in the virtual one. 
again, at the expense of the physical environment and its most impoverished people. In a post-pandemic society, we see one of the more appreciated outcomes of the pandemic being remote work. In this vein, startups have taken advantage of the trend and have started introducing what is called digital nomad villages. Now, to reference an article written by Susanna Ferreira called Troubles in Workers' Paradise, published in Wired's March 2023 edition, she writes of the digital nomad village in Portugal called Ponta do Sol, which, to quote her, is on the southern coast of Madeira, the main island of the Portuguese archipelago of the same name. Startup Madeira sells Ponta do Sol as a place you can call home, end quote. What's ironic here is that even the name Madeira derives in nature, the very nature that throughout history was exploited and raped by different countries and corporations through colonization. Again, to quote Ferreira, she continues to say that in the 15th century, when the Portuguese first landed on Madeira's shores, the island was uninhabited by humans, thick with forest cover, and abundant with life. The conquistadors didn't name Madeira after what they saw growing there, trees, green, wood, forest, or jungle, but after the commodity those trees could become once they were raised, wood, timber, lumber. Madeira, 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 end quote. So unsurprisingly, this is an example of people coming to what is a foreign land to them and feeling entitled to take ownership of the territory and exploit it in whatever way they can to best optimize their desires. Now, the sad irony is in the way we see history repeating itself in this region today through the digital lens. Again, quoting Ferreira, the price of homes in Ponta do Sol has jumped 30% in the past year, and the rental stock in Madeira has dropped by 42% in approximately the same period. Nearly two-thirds of the apartments on offer were priced over 1,000 euros in a region where the monthly minimum wage is 723 euros. Madeiran residents now pay a higher percentage of their salary on rent than most of the country. Portuguese people earn among the lowest salaries in Europe, work some of the longest hours, and pay some of the highest income taxes. An audit in 2021 found that more than 90% of all visas issued in the past nine years were for a real estate agent. Last fall, the Portuguese press documented a distressing shortage of student housing, with report after report of undergraduates dropping out or sleeping in pantries because 80% of the rooms that had long been available to them were rented out. End quote. So that's a lot to digest, but it's important to process because again we see how people are taking entitlement to foreign land foreign territory at the expense of that land and again its people and we see this play out in many ways so now to quote a new wired article this time from the march 2023 edition I will be referencing The Spaceport at the Edge of the World by Thomas Weber. This article discusses a similar conflict between 
locals fighting to maintain control of their village and a foreign colonizer eyeing their territory and competing for it. This time the conflict is between the Scottish village of Melnez and the Danish billionaire Anders Hulk Povelsen, who owns the fast fashion company Bestseller and according to Weber, quote, is the richest man in Scotland and its largest private landowner, end quote. In a fight to maintain control of their village, Melnez has considered the idea of building a spaceport on its property. The spaceport, again quoting Weber, could give them a decent rental income and reliable employment, end quote. So here we see an example of people in less wealthy positions and less powerful positions have to choose between various forms of exploitation and essentially choose the least evil outcome. So a spaceport would contribute to additional environmental degradation and global warming, as well as the likely risk of health and safety concerns faced by those working at the port. Additional questions to ask would be whether the spaceport would employ local residents or outsource that work to, again, cheaper human labor. So who do we exploit? How do we exploit them? And how do we optimize this exploitation at the expense of people and the environment? We see the same kind of negligence going on with billionaires like Elon Musk, Richard Branson, and Jeff Bezos, who are fighting to be the first to colonize space. This mentality is elitist and harmful because though it might spell out a future for some of us, that future is only affordable to the wealthiest of us. In the process, it will continue to erode our land and those who already face financial obstacles will have their issues compounded with the environmental risks of relocation and health and safety, etc., etc. To reference this episode's last Wired article, written by Joel Khalili, I'm so sorry if I'm saying any of these names wrong, um, published in April 2023 called The Haves and Have-Nots of the Metaverse. This article is, again, important because it references Decentraland. So what is this? According to Khalili, and I quote, it is a 3D virtual world that runs on the Ethereum blockchain. Renting the land would have given the tenant the right to build anything on it. A shop, an event space, an art installation, whatever. But the real winner would be the landlord. When Decentraland launched in 2017, users were given the chance to purchase ownership rights to any of 90,601 parcels, each represented on the Ethereum blockchain by a non-fungible token. At the time, plots sold for roughly $20 a piece, but by late 2021, the height of the NFT boom, land routinely changed hands for tens of thousands of dollars. One company, Metaverse Group, purchased a single parcel for $2.4 million, end quote. So I have a lot to say here. First, Metaverse Group is different from Meta Platforms, which is a platform run by the one and only Zuckerberg. Also, it's important to note that those who had access to this opportunity in 2017 would have to be somebody that's already more privileged than most people in the world. 
because not only would they need access to the technology required to operate this virtual real estate, aka laptop, computer, whatever, but they would need access to internet and more specifically fast internet if they really want to optimize the rental space of these virtual properties. To finish off the episode, I will stay on the topic of virtual realities and transition to the discussion of Tuvalu, the island country in the South Pacific, which is also the world's first country to go digital in the metaverse. As I so emphasized in this week's episode, we see technology's influence on the environment as well as environment's influence on technology and how the increase of technological use and technological waste contributes to climate change and global warming, which results in high tides, which we are now seeing in countries like Tuvalu, which has predictions of the country being fully underwater by the end of the century, and currently has roughly 40% of its current capital district already underwater during high tide. So again, it is imperative that we move fast and we bring awareness to these issues that are being compounded by harmful technology. And we need to understand that the climate change that they are facing is largely a result of Western corporations and Western billionaires raping the Earth's natural resources. And if that's not enough, then we need to ask ourselves, and we can end on this note, who is going to accept climate refugees when they need to relocate because their lands are disappearing because of the actions of those in remote places? Are we going to build a wall to keep the water out? We need solutions and we need to act fast. And on that note, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Technically Biased. Have a lovely day and tune in next week for another episode.